one of the themes that comes through loud and clear is that there can be a problem with religion. Have you ever thought of religion as problematic? Well, think about it. How many times have we encountered friends, family members at a funeral and they're talking about the loved one and they say, well, he's certainly in heaven because he lived such a good life. So it's attributed to the things that one has done. How many times have we looked for a beautiful place of worship? And there are some exemplary um, ideals for us, even in our culture, in our, uh, in our day. Uh, think about some of the greatest places that people have gathered for worship. St. Peter's uh, the Basilica in Rome. Or maybe here in the United States, the Washington Cathedral in, in Washington, D.C. Or, or perhaps Riverside Church up in Harlem in New York City. These are all beautiful examples of architecture, of places of worship. And we talk about worship then as perhaps more of a cultural experience. We even might want to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the church where Jesus, uh, over which uh, the plot of land which Jesus supposedly rose from the dead. You can go into that church, wind around through the sanctuary, down the stairs behind the, uh, the front of the church, into the catacombs, and then this big open room with another building right inside of that, and inside that building is supposedly the place where Jesus went to heaven. So have we focused on the wrong thing, creating the problem of religion? In the church, have we tried to lift up things that are good, but that can be culturally assumed, baptisms, confirmations, graduations, and we have ceremonies for these things. But do they create faith? And so what the preacher is trying to help this house church of Hebrews to understand is that when Jesus came, he came in order that we might be encouraged, in order that we might be able to see that God had something greater than even our 21st century vision of the church. I think that the preacher here is trying to help this house church of Hebrews by making a similar point from their particular context. He begins by showing us the beauty and the splendor of this original old sanctuary, the tabernacle, which was a tent. <laughs> and then he begins by first entering into that outer chamber of the tent. They called it the holy place. And the first thing that we see in this description that Jeff read is the lampstand. The lampstand is one piece of solid gold. It's a big stand, 
and it's got six branches, three on each side, and then the center of the lampstand becomes a spot as well where they put these beautiful almond olive uh, tips on them to hold the oil to burn the candles. There's seven of them. It is ornated. It's beautiful. It is in that outer chamber of the tabernacle. And in that lampstand, um, it is recorded that they used 75 pounds of gold. So we know that it was not a little miniature lampstand. We know that it was a very solid piece of lampstand. Then we go from the lampstand to the table with the bread of presence. This is made out of acacia wood that then is overlaid with gold. It has a three-inch gold border around it, four gold rings, one on each corner of the table, wooden rods that are then overlaid with gold that are used to carry the table when they want to move it. On the table were gold pitchers and ladles and jars and vessels, bowls. And in the center of the table sat 12 loaves of bread. They called it shoe bread. One loaf of bread designated for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was known as the bread of God's presence. So we are still in that outer chamber and we see these beautiful, ornate things of God's place of worship. But there is yet a holier place, and that is the inner tent. If you go from that outer tent behind the curtain that divides the tents, there is an inner tent. And in that inner tent, there stands the golden altar altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant, we have some items listed as well. It is the golden jar of manna inside the Ark. This was a jar that Moses had the people put manna into so that it would be a reminder for them all of how God provided for them in the wilderness. Next to the jar of manna was Aaron's rod. And this is an interesting story because Aaron's rod um, had buds on it, almond buds. And the story actually begins the chapter before number 17, when there is a Levite, Korah, and a couple of other Levite families that are getting frustrated. They're part of the group that's leading the grumbling and the complaining against Moses and Aaron, and they are tired of being in the wilderness, and they want to rebel, and so they revolt. And uh, Korah reviews, refuses, he refuses to, um, uh, to submit to their leadership. He, he rebels And um, as the story goes, God becomes very angry with these families. There is a great earthquake. The earth swallows up the three families, their tents, and, uh, and there is nothing left except for the golden incense holders that each family had. 
and they used those then to overlay the altar. So there is a dispute now. Korah has created dissonance within the people of Israel. And so Moses has asked a leader from each of the tribes to come and bring his rod before them and write their names on the rod. So Aaron comes as the representative of the Levites. All the other tribes bring their representative. They lay their rods at Moses' feet. He puts them in the inner chamber of the tent overnight. They come back in the morning, and there are buds growing on Aaron's rod. And so the implicit message is people start following Aaron and Moses. There are no other leaders for you in this wilderness. So the the rod of Aaron is there next to the golden jar of manna. And then on top of the ark is this golden mercy seat with two cherubim, two angels, groups of angels, that are hovering above. The priests are busy going in and out of that outer tent because there they're offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. And it's day in and day out they are receiving these animals for sacrifice and they are going into the tent and they are making their sacrifices and they come back out and new people go in and make sacrifices. But in the inner tent, only the high priest enters and that only once a year to offer a sacrifice for the unintentional sins of Israel and of the high priest himself. Jesus refers to this festival, and you may know it as a 10-day festival in the Jewish calendar that begins on Rosh Hashanah and ends on Yom Kippur. That is the Day of Atonement. That is when that final sacrifice is made once and for all for that full year for the people of Israel and for the great high priest. We just celebrated our Jewish friends and neighbors just celebrated Yom Kippur this past week. It began on Wednesday evening and it, um, it concluded on Thursday at sundown. And so this is the history that we have of what the preacher the author of this book of Hebrews is saying to this house church, he's reviewing with them how they have practiced religion. But then he says, the things of the old temple are beautiful and historic, but they are beside the point. The point of these things and the point of the tabernacle is that it never provided sufficient and full payment, there was always a need for more. The lamps needed to have more oil. The bread of the presence on the table in the altar needed to be refreshed every Sabbath. The priests were continually making sacrifices daily on behalf of the people. And every year the high priest needed to make another blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. The preacher of this house, church, knows his people. And he knows that they have been worn down, that they are weary, 
and tired. And that the joy that they once had as a Christian fellowship has begun to fall away. That this joy and peace that they once knew in the celebration of the Christian faith has dissipated. What does one do with a church that struggles to fill the lamps, to bake more bread, to find more sacrifices? Well, our sacrifices tend to be a little more clean. You know, we just call them meetings, church meetings, or offerings, or expectations, or things that we should do. What this house church of Hebrews desired and what all churches, I believe, deep down desire is not more things to do. But what they desire is to encounter a powerful and living God who can bring them the hope that they are seeking. There is a, a pastor, she's also a seminary professor, and a prolific author, Barbara Brown Taylor. In one of her books, she writes about when she was the director of education at a church. And she said that the church kept coming to her, the people kept coming to her and saying, we want to try more Bible study. We need more Bible study. And so she asked leaders to provide Bible studies, which they did, but the attendance didn't really grow. So then she thought, well, maybe if I um, hired some seminary professors to come and teach, they would come to that. And so she began to hire seminary professors to come and teach Bible studies at the church. And the attendance still really didn't grow. She said it was about that time that she began to figure out that Bible study was a code word. What the people really wanted was a fresh encounter with God. Not more information. Not that information is bad. But what they really desired was an encounter with the living God. And so she began to craft Bible studies with more interaction and discussion about what people were looking for and how they could see it through the scriptures that they were studying. I think that's true for most of us. As we search for God, as we seek God, we may not be looking so much for information as confirmation that God is God and that God is working in our lives, in your life. That when you reach out, that God is there. That is what that Hebrew church was struggling with as they began to struggle with faith. How do we hold on to what we have been given? I mean, there is so much going on. People are now being persecuted in this early church. And Jesus said he was coming again, and it's been a generation, and now those first apostles are all dying, and we don't have that record. And so the people began to get nervous and anxious and worry. 
the author of Hebrews is telling us that is precisely why God sent Jesus. He said that Christ became the high priest and that as the great high priest, he entered the greater and perfect tabernacle in heaven. Let's take a look at verse 11 from our reading today. So Christ, Christ Jesus has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made with human hands and is not part of this created world. What we needed and what we need is a reminder that Jesus Christ came to earth as one of us so that he could take to heaven all of our sins and lay them on the altar of the true one temple, the temple of heaven, to offer them to God as his sacrifice paying for them all. You see, his sacrifice wasn't a temple sacrifice. He wasn't the replacement lamb in the sense that they took him into the temple and sacrificed him. No. His sacrifice occurred through and in the original and perfect temple. That is heaven. The point of verse 11 is that it is not about the building or the vestments or the vessels. And the problem that this highlights is that whether we're looking at this from the Old Testament scriptures or whether we're looking at it with the New Testament eyes, the problem is that we all get caught up in the outer chamber of the tabernacle. We're still trying to figure out what we should do next, what we should offer, what, how the lamps need to be filled, how the bread needs to be refreshed. We're, we're thinking about all the things that we need to do to make church, to do church. When Jesus is saying, I did church for you. What Jesus gives us is the passing away of the temporary, of the imperfect, and the provisional. And whenever and wherever Christians gather for worship, we follow our great high priest into the greater and perfect tabernacle. He is in heaven, and that is where we worship him. And so our praise, our songs of praise and worship here on earth, they are to be a reflection to heaven to give thanks to God for Jesus. You know, and, and the great thing about this perfect tent, this perfect temple, is that it will not leak. <laughs> it will not smell moldy. And it will need no repairs. And by joining into this fellowship, we, you, and I will not perish. 
But Jesus Christ, the great high priest, offered not an animal sacrifice, but he offered himself, a sacrifice without blemish. In verses 13 and 14, it says to us here, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow could cleanse people's bodies from certain uh, impurities. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. The sacrifice of the old temple made one ritually clean. Do you remember how Jesus would cleanse the lepers and send them to the priest and that they would declare that they were cleansed? It cleansed their outer shell, the outer temple, the outer part of their being. But the sacrifice of Jesus, it purifies and cleanses the inner being, our inner selves. We are freed from our dead works and our futile attempts to make amends with God so that we can be like that Samaritan woman when Jesus says to her, but the time is coming, indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. And the worship is now made possible by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The preacher then explains it as a last will and testament. This is one of my favorite sections of this, of this reading, verses 16 through 20. Now, when someone leaves a will, we, we've all heard of wills. We all probably have wills, right? If not, we should have them. Um, but when someone leaves a will, it is necessary to prove that the person who made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after that person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For ashes, I'm sorry, for after Moses had, had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, the blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. Without shedding of blood, Moses was saying, there is no covenant. And where there is no covenant, there is no forgiveness. And where there is no forgiveness, there is no eternal life. And so the blood needed to be shed. Verse 22, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Think about that. Have you ever wanted to get a college degree and not go to college? I mean, not do the work? You could just order a college degree online, get the paperwork, fill it out, and pay them a certain amount of money, and they could give you a college degree. 
and you could tell everyone I have this college degree. But if you did that, it's a cheap degree, isn't it? It's an imitation because there's no cost to it. To have the true degree is costly. It took four years for most people of pretty hard work studying, taking tests, writing papers, processing with professors, teachers' aides. The same thing goes for forgiveness. It is not easy, and it is not cheap. As a matter of fact, forgiveness is costly. It costs. It costs to purchase animals for the sacrifice, and it was costly for God because it cost him his only begotten son as our final sacrifice. And this is why having faith in Jesus is different from offering sacrifices. In the old tabernacle, one imitated that heavenly worship, that heavenly tabernacle. But now Jesus Christ has entered that heavenly temple, not made with hands, and he has entered it on our behalf. The work of your redemption, and this is the good news here, the work of your redemption is done. It is completed once and for all by Jesus, not by you, not by me, by Jesus. And when, when Jesus Christ comes again, this is other good news. It will not be for judgment. Much to many people's dismay, we'd like to have a judging God come back and crush the earth. But that's not what the preacher's saying. He's telling us something very different in verses 27 and 28. And just as each person is, is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, that's the, the judgment God, he says, so also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. That's a whole different kind of judgment, friends. That's a judgment that has been paid. That is a forgiveness that has been given. And that has been given for you. It's like that old hymn that we used to sing. The strife is o'er, the battle is done, the victory of life is won, the song of triumph has begun. Hallelujah. The preacher here is telling us it's not about the acts of religion. It is about the faith. And that gift of faith is offered for every hearer. In the midst of challenges that we continue to trudge through, let us not lose that one thing that we need the most. And that is faith. Amen.